Hey, Paul. Hey, Vela. How's life? Life is good. It's uh, snowing outside uh, properly for the first time, I think, uh, during this uh, winter. So looking forward to seeing if we're going to have a white Christmas. I hope so. Yeah, indeed. But I, I'm almost afraid to ask ask about this, but we do have to do this for our listeners. Uh, do you have a joke for us, Paul? Of course I do. Yes. Oh, I was afraid you're going to say that. Okay, please go ahead. Okay. So, you know, a local bank here in Finland is introducing a cash point machine built into a tree. Mm-hmm. If it's successful, they might expand to other branches. Oh, no. Oh, no, please. What, what? Ah, ah. Okay, so But who have... gave us this uh, fantastic uh, moment in life? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this joke came to us from uh, David Grundy in Copenhagen. Our good old friend, David Grundy, Mr. Danske Bank Blockchain. Yes, indeed. Yeah. He was the guest in uh, in season one, I think, right? Yeah, he was indeed, yes. Yeah. And a good guest he was as, as well, uh, as are all our guests, of course. Yes. But, dear listeners, on with the show uh, and the podcast that dives into the world of banking technologies and the ever-changing landscape of fintech companies with real-life examples, examples from guests and experts across the board. We scour the world to seek out interesting fintech stories and, and insights ranging from emerging technologies to game-changing disruptive ideas brought to us by the big banks, technology companies and fintech startups all of them seeking to challenge the status quo with revolutionary ideas and big fantastic dreams. This, as always, is Fintech Daydreaming. Welcome back to the show. My name is still Ville Sointu, uh, and I have the privilege to be the host of uh, today's episode. We have an awesome episode lined up for you today, uh, but bef- before we get to the good stuff, we of course need to say hi to my favorite and only co-host of the show, Paul Grugdal. How's it going today, Paul? Still going good, Villa. Still going good. Still good. So no change in the last minute or so. Perfect. No. So we have a bit of news to share. I think we have a website. We do indeed. Yes, we've got a nice, new, fantastic, beautiful website. A lot of effort put into putting it together. Um, it has, uh, on a running order, the latest five podcast episodes available for people to uh, to listen to or watch. I mean, remembering we uh, we do publish as well onto uh, YouTube, and we would love for people to uh, hop onto YouTube and. Uh, hit the subscribe button and help us to build up our following on YouTube. That would be fantastic. But check out the website. It is, as expected, on fintechdaydreaming.com. Excellent. And uh, you will also find our contact information on the website. So please uh, get in touch. Uh, if you lo- if you love the, w- love the website, get in touch. If you hate the website, please let us know and we'll see if we can fix it. Either way, uh, you can find the contact information and uh, information about the guests and the hosts uh, from, the, from the website. And uh, we're really looking forward to your feedback uh, on, the, uh, on the website. 
But enough of chit-chat, let's get on to the interesting part of the show. Because our guest today is Dr. Kier Finlow-Bates, and I couldn't be more excited about having him with us today. Kier is a researcher, an author, and an inventor in the true meaning of the word, but he's also the CEO and founder of Chainfrog and Thinklair. Finnish startups, uh, these Finnish startups are researching and developing blockchain intellectual property. Kier holds an MA and a BA uh, in mathematics and engineering from Cambridge, uh, and a PhD in mathematics and education from London. He's been researching blockchain technology for almost a decade, I guess almost over a decade by now, and uh, has dozens of patents uh, granted, uh, and that number is going up on a regular basis, as Kier is extremely productive uh, in the intellectual property and patent space. So, Kier, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Oh, thank you very much. I'm doing very well. Great. Are you, are you, are you having snow uh, where you are right now? Uh, no, not at the moment, although it is pretty cold. So, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, it seems to be a regional phenomenon then, uh, because you are based in Finland, right? Uh, that's right, yeah. I'm um, uh, sort of halfway between Dampere and Turku. All right, all right. And for our international listeners, that is, uh, I would say, uh, maybe 150, 200 kilometers away from where we are with Paul. But anyway... Uh, let's uh, let's get on with the uh, with the kind of meaty topics of the day. So, Kier, uh, could you tell our listeners a bit more about uh, you uh, and your work? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, uh, I spent about twenty years in the software industries, uh, mainly as a test engineer and a test manager, and uh, got interested in inventing because various employers offered uh, remuneration schemes for submitting inventions to them. Mm. Uh, it was in the last five years of working for companies as an employee that I stumbled across uh, Bitcoin. So I think that was uh, early 2010. Uh, unfortunately, I only did things like looking at the code and the protocol. I didn't go out and buy lots of cheap Bitcoins, which is why I still have to work for a living. Um, but uh, then in 2015, uh, there were a lot of layoffs where I was working and I decided to strike out on my own and become an entrepreneur and focus on blockchain full time. And of course, back in 2015, <clears throat> there's still a lot of skepticism from a lot of people about what the significance of all this stuff was. I, I think we're seeing now that uh, it does have legs, but uh, back then it did feel like a bit of a gamble, but um, I like to think it's one that paid off because it's a really, really interesting technology to work in. Um, and draws in so many different things that I'm interested in. So I couldn't be happier. Yeah, indeed. I think uh, you've, you've spent a lot of time on this. And uh, I guess we, we share a bit of uh, experience there as well, because when I when I first started uh, being interested in Bitcoin, the, the number one mistake I did was that I actually didn't get any Bitcoin myself. <laughs> so I also, yeah. I also have to work for a living and also make a podcast for, uh, for a hobby uh, at, at the same time, which is, by the way, a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, so let's let's move on with the uh, with the topics of the day. And uh, because we are uh, a fintech podcast, I guess we, we need to kind of move on to the uh, 
uh, to the kind of financial services and banking space and the application of blockchain technology in that space as well. But uh, blockchain, of course, is a very broad topic and has applications practically anywhere uh, where there's a need to build networks of trust. Uh, yet outside the crazy world of permissionless cryptocurrencies like, like Bitcoin, uh, we haven't really seen large scale adoption of blockchain technology happen just quite yet, even though there are some examples out there. Now, if we kind of take a st step back a little bit uh, and kind of look at the, the tra trajectory of the uh, of blockchain technology usage in the, in the financial industry, uh, I think this all kind of started, uh, kind of properly started in 2015 when the, uh, the blockchain, not Bitcoin narrative, got into full gear along with the rise of Ethereum. Uh, now, those utopian dreams of a fully transparent and decentralized financial infrastructure never really materialized uh, in the way many imagined back then, at least not yet. Uh, but we've seen certainly a lot of interesting development in different parts of the value chain, uh, nonetheless. Now, Kier, uh, what's your view on blockchain technology usage in financial industry? Uh, is it a solution looking for a problem or something else? Um, well, I think first I have to start off by pointing out that I um, don't work in the uh, financial industries. I've never worked for a bank. Um, so I actually have no idea what is going on inside their offices when they're working on these things. Um, however, as an outsider, I can observe from news reports and stuff how things change over time. Um, and I do do some consultancy for a Finnish company called uh, Valega Chain Analytics, uh, who are looking at helping the financial services uh, be able to track transactions on blockchains such as Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And um, I think my first take would be that the financial industries are heavily regulated and for a reason. And as a result, they are not agile startups that can just run with a wild idea and see where it goes. If you're managing millions or billions in client portfolios, um, you're not going to have a good reputation in the industry if uh, you just uh, change the pivot at the moment's notice from how you do things from one paradigm to another. And when you look at blockchain, it is a paradigm shift. It's a different way of looking at how transactions at the fundamental level um, are handled. So in that respect, I'm not at all surprised that we're not seeing banks put up big billboards saying to their customers, hey, we're using blockchain now. Yeah. In fact, if anything, I'm surprised to see um, how much is actually going on. If you look at, for example, the patents that have been awarded and the patent applications that have been filed that are now publicly available, you'll see that companies or banks like uh, Bank of America and MasterCard, PayPal, um, have been quite busy filing away. So it's not like they've ignored it. It's just that they haven't seen it necessary to make big announcements about it yet. Um, does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, I mean, one of the uh, things that we have talked about in the podcast before and uh, an example that I tend to bring up uh, when we talk about blockchain adoption, for example, with my employer, uh, is that, uh, as you correctly pointed out, uh, the banks do not put, put uh, these big billboards outside saying that uh, now running on a blockchain. Uh, it's it's mo mostly about 
finding the efficiencies uh, in creating these networks of trust and and sometimes blockchain does bring some unique features uh, into this uh, into this network building that can be utilized but ultimately uh, from a bank perspective and the bank's customers perspective uh, the, the banks tend to hide uh, the technology that is uh, uh, behind these uh, new new and interesting services so so to me it's more it's it's about the uh, uh, being able to create this uh, new type type of trust between institutions and and, and uh, the uh, our customers by using uh, blockchain like architectures and indeed uh, it should be uh, invisible uh, to the to the customer but the uh, I mean one of the things that I oftentimes run into when having these conversations about blockchains and banks is that uh, the, the banks and the financial industry in general has, has built these kind of trust-based networks for decades, uh, even before blockchain technology came along. Uh, we, I kind of briefly mentioned already that uh, blockchain has some unique characteristics that could be interesting uh, uh, in terms of building more efficient infrastructure. But what do you think are these uh, unique features that, uh, that might make this... Uh, blockchain technology relevant uh, in building these uh, next generation uh, trust networks? Um, I would say it comes from the perspective of the customers or the users of the bank rather than from the bank's perspective. And I think that's ultimately where the pressure is going to come from. And one of the reasons that we're not seeing change yet is that pressure hasn't arrived because people are still coming to grips with uh, what all these things mean. So. When I think of it myself personally, one of the things that I like very much about open permissionless blockchains is that I am truly the captain of my own ship. I, I, mm. I truly own the cryptocurrency or the tokens that I have acquired um, in a real sense. Whereas when I have money with a bank, um, they are the custodians of it. And mm. I have to effectively make a request to them to be able to spend what is meant to be my own money. And that kind of system works fine if everything's running smoothly um, until, for example, just the other weekend, there was a two day service interruption and I couldn't withdraw any cash from the cash machine. So I couldn't pay my kids pocket money and I couldn't make purchases at the supermarket with my Finnish bank card. I had to switch to using um, my English credit card in order to be able to buy groceries. Mm -hmm. And uh, so from a, and as traditional bank customers, we kind of accept that that's the way things are. Um, you know, in the same way that my grandparents accepted that they had to go to the butchers and the bakers and the grocers whenever they went shopping, there wasn't a convenience of a supermarket. But people over time um, expect higher and higher standards of service. Mm -hmm. and. I have a story about when I was at my cottage in uh, the middle of the Finnish forest in, in the middle of Christmas, and there was a power cut and all the uh, power networks went down. But the funny thing was that I had my mobile phone and the cell towers had battery backup. And so it turned out mm. that although, although I couldn't boil a pan of water to make a pot of soup, um, and you know, I certainly uh, couldn't use my uh, desktop to go and use PayPal or something like that. The fact is I had a, a wallet on my phone and mm. the, uh, the cryptocurrency networks don't go down because they're so decentralized. So despite the fact that I was in, in candlelight in effectively sort of pre-industrial environment, um, I could have, if I wanted to, transferred 
uh, cryptocurrency to somebody else on the other side of the world. So that kind of thing, I don't think traditional financial infrastructure offers yet. And that would be an example of something that um, blockchain could potentially offer. So that, that's just yeah. one example. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Uh, however, I sometimes feel when uh, when talking about this, uh, basically my keys, my Bitcoin, not my keys, not mm -hmm. my Bitcoin uh, type of uh, uh, conversations is that uh, most people uh, who want to interact with Bitcoin don't really understand uh, these nuances of this uh, of things that you need to do in order to really be in control of your own own assets and, and so forth. And mm -hmm. that, of course, leaves a lot, lot of room for uh, different kind of fraudulent activities around the network, even though the, uh, the, the permissionless blockchain networks like Bitcoin might be uh, transparent and fair and uh, allow you to really own your own coins for sure. But it's, it's really about the, uh, uh, the services around it uh, that try to make it simple, but also then expose a lot of customers for potential fraud. So what, what do you think about this, uh, this gap, uh, this kind of uh, gap, but gap, a technology gap that uh, users need to kind of uh, across before understanding the, the true benefits of uh, of this technology. Well, I, I agree entirely with you that for your average person in the street, they they don't want to have to mess around with um, effectively tuning the engine of the system or understanding all the moving parts inside it. And uh, whereas, for example, if you have bigger institutional players, they might be more concerned about actually having more control over what it is that they have. And you know, there will always be custodians, there will always be services offered, and it would be better for um, ordinary people if they were offered by known trusted uh, financial service providers rather than some random website that they found on the internet one day. So I agree entirely there that the the usability of the system needs to be improved and it needs these big um, well-known players to actually adopt it before it really will go mainstream in, in my opinion. Um, but it does offer a platform for those institutions to build on. And I, now that you see, for example, more and more companies putting spare funds into uh, some of these uh, cryptocurrencies, um, I imagine that the financial services will recognize there's a, there is now a market there in a way that there wasn't five years ago. Um, and we will see improvements in that area. It's, it's purely a matter of uh, uh, customer demand. And you know, banks are not interested in catering to a small handful of um, radical libertarians. It's not a big market to uh, target. Um, but they are interested in providing services to large companies sitting on large cash reserves that they're not doing anything with. So I think purely from a, a business perspective, over time, it will just make more and more sense. I think there's maybe also a, a difference between regulated industries and non-regulated mm -hmm. entities, right? And I think mm -hmm. that the banks, although sometimes maybe want to do certain things, they are bound by by laws and they're bound by by the regulators um, but that also gives a certain element of security and trust to to the general population right another big difference between bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency versus your your uh, money in the bank is the fact that the money that's in the bank it is backed it is insured um, you know the bank can't just 
theoretically take your money and run away with it. Whereas, you know, if your your crypto wallet is is hacked, it's hacked. No one's going to come along and say, well, that's okay. It was insured and we can help you. Whereas if your credit card is is copied, then there is certain uh, limitations that the bank will stand behind to actually help you out and and to refund you uh, to a certain level, right? Mm, Yeah. And, you know, we have all these financial uh, regulations for a good reason. I I spent about a week reading all the uh, recent uh, 2019 um, FATF regulations on virtual assets. And, you know, it's it's very long and it's very tedious, but it's there for a reason. Um, I think the uh, insurance that is offered by um, these uh, central authorities effectively is, is something worth looking at in further detail in that it is good that it is there what is fdic insured i think is the american term yes um uh, however that still means that it doesn't mean that there aren't people who fall through the cracks there was a report about nine months ago of a client of um, barclays i think who accidentally sent a large sum of money to the wrong bank account that unfortunately had the same name of the person he was sending it to and it was really only when the newspapers, I think it was The Guardian, got involved, that Barclays finally pulled their finger out and actually got in his money back. Um, you know, it's, it's a known problem in cryptocurrency that you can send uh, your, um, your money to uh, the wrong address due to a typo, um, and it's just gone. So there need to be more and more safeguards in place in order to prevent that kind of thing happening. But no matter how many safeguards you have, there's no guarantee, and we see it in traditional finance as well. Um, however, the regulations are there for a reason, and they are something that I support. Um, and uh, you know, now we have now that there is finally some guidance, and that is a big step. The fact that the FATF have actually put out guidance, and the EU is bringing in directives in order to indicate to the various um, European countries how they're to implement it. Um, these are very significant because now it finally means that. Um, banks who are on a bound to follow these regulations actually feel that they have, you know, some kind of a foothold and some kind of understanding of where they can start. And, and that was another big problem three or four years ago, was that um, they weren't going to touch it because they had no idea what was going to come along in a few years' time and that all that work could be undone. Hmm. So um, I, I see all these things as very positive moves. Yeah, and I suppose you know, we could say that the banking industry is quite rapidly heading in that direction when we start looking at central bank digital currencies. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it is yeah. a, a fine line between the cryptocurrencies into the central bank di- digital currencies. They're, they're both, on, both based on the same technologies, but coming from a different regulated standpoint, right? Mm. Yeah, and it's it's uh, central banks, by definition, of course, are centralized. So there's a kind of a dilemma there on how you know, how do you actually do it? Uh, can you do it decentralized? And if you look at the models of the European Central Bank, for example, is doing right now, it is just a fully centralized accounting system rather than a cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. But uh, in, in terms of regulation, the uh, uh, there's an interesting uh, part of regulation that's coming down the line now, markets in crypto assets, MICA regulation. It's the, in the same vein as, uh, as the MIFID uh, uh, regulation, which is the, for securities in general, but the uh, markets in crypto assets reg- regulation from the European Union is uh, is up for review right now, and uh, it's uh, that's uh, definitely worth uh, having a look uh, if you if you're interested in crypto regulation and how it's going to look like uh, in the European Union. 
Well, I, I try to only read it if I have to, to be honest, because it's not the most <laughs> exciting material to wade through. Um, there is what? one thing I wanted to go back to on there, though, which is that, you know, you're, you're right that at the moment, um, the European Central Bank is looking at digital currencies that are, they're just digital currencies. It's not a decentralized blockchain-based system that they're proposing at all. Um, however, of course, money, cash, which is on the way out, is decentralized. You know, once it's once it's out there in the economy, the banks no longer have any control over it. Um, they can't magic a five-pound note or a ten-euro note out of my wallet. Um, and although cards and uh, mobile pay are convenient, um, I think that as it gets uh, harder and harder to find cash. Um, there are going to be ordinary people who I hasten to add are not criminals who find that it's actually rather uh, there are certain circumstances where you just need cash. Um, you need to have this uh, effectively a bearer bond or some kind of you know asset that is under your control. So I, I can't help wondering if we're going, we're going sort of through a wave where we're moving more and more towards centralized financial systems where uh, you are not in full control of them, that as we lose our decentralized system, traditional money, um, more and more awareness of what we've lost will um, arise and that eventually that could see us move on to, at the end of that wave, uh, moving back to a decentralized form of a digital currency, or, uh, of a currency, but then digital rather than physical but it's just a thought i think that's sort of connected to the uh, the issue of the large number of unbanked people we have in various mm -hmm. societies right as long as you still have unbanked people you, you still have a need for some form of transfer of value whether that mm -hmm. is a form of cash or, or cryptocurrencies maybe right but having mm -hmm. cryptocurrencies also means that you need to have access to technology which most people these days do have a mobile phone, but there are still certain people who don't. And mm -hmm. therefore the cash still has a place in, in society. Yeah, well, if you, if you look at situations where there is no money available, uh, people invent it. So you've all heard stories about prisoners using cigarettes as uh, a form of currency because they didn't have money in there. Um, and I think you'd find the same thing would rapidly happen in uh, general society if there was no cash available at all. Um, people would turn to something else um, because there are just occasionally needs where you need to um, engage in a financial transaction and doing it in a, um, a digital or um, you know, a computer-backed way isn't possible, like, as you said, the unbanked. We sometimes ask our, our guests, actually, to, to share their favorite technology-related war stories. You had, you had a great example there about uh, being able to still use your phone, even though, you know, the power and everything had gone out. But, you know, great stories give interesting color to topics we're discussing here on a regular basis. With your uh, incredible amount of experience, you must have a lot of great stories of your own that you could spend, you know, a couple of minutes uh, sharing with our listeners. Well, yeah, I was thinking about that the other day, actually. It, it, there's, there's lots of little anecdotes and things like that, but I think I'll um, talk about uh, the early days of Chainfrog, where we had this product uh, called Blockbinder, 
And the idea of it was that it would connect a blockchain to a traditional database. Because at that point, there were very few people who knew how to um, write uh, code to work with blockchains. And they weren't very well documented, um, but there were lots and lots of database developers out there. So we thought, this is fantastic. We've got a great market here. Um, as it happens, we didn't get market traction because um, the, uh, the market hadn't got there yet. But we'd spent about six months coding this up. And then one day my CTO called me up and said, you know, I've been working on this for half a year. And why are we interfacing a database with a blockchain when we could just do this with a database? And uh, he was really, really dejected. He felt like he'd just wasted uh, six months of his life on something and then had this sudden realization that um, hang on, I've been all swept up in the beauty of this technology and how interesting and complicated it is and how it draws in cryptography and maths, things that he, he loved. Um, and then he, I think he'd woken up at three in the morning and in a cold sweat thinking, but you can just do this with the database. And of course, technically speaking, he's absolutely right. The technical side of what a blockchain does can be done much more efficiently with a database. And I had to explain to him that, you know, you're looking at this as a technologist. Um, we're not solving a technology problem here. We're solving a social and a psychological problem. If you can get everybody in the world to agree, uh, then you don't need to have a government. If you can get everybody uh, in a consortium of companies to agree, agree um, then you don't need a blockchain. Um, but the fact is that when you look at how uh, any group of people bigger than three, I would say, getting consensus is really, really hard. And um, any methods that can improve the speed at which consensus is obtained and um, that can help ratify and lock down decisions is going to have long-term benefits. And it's not a technical problem. It's, it's a problem with the human mind. Um, and blockchain solves that. And uh, after I'd sort of given him the 15-minute pep talk, as you're duty-bound as a CEO, um, he just breathed a big sigh of relief and said, thanks very much, and had the uh, most productive week of coding after that. So there's one anecdote for you. Yeah, I, 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 that story sounds so familiar. Uh, there's, there's a lot of people uh, who got swept away uh, in the blockchain hype and then suddenly realized that most of the things that uh, people have been working on can really be solved with a database. Uh, in a much easier way. Uh, but then uh, there is the kind of uh, uh, small amount of cases out of everything that was done uh, that actually requires uh, this uh, decentralization element in order to keep it transparent and fair. Uh, and I think it's it's about finding those uh, correct applications of this technology that will mm -hmm. allow this uh, to move forward uh, as well. But uh, Kier, uh, we're kind of uh, spending, uh, spending a lot of uh, good minutes here uh, talking, but uh, I need to move us forward in the, uh, in the kind of uh, the questions that we have here. And one of these questions is that while I was doing uh, pre-work uh, for this episode, I actually stumbled upon an interview of you uh, from 2019, where you said that uh, your view on blockchain technology shifts uh, monthly. So uh, now it's, it's November 2020, the last time I checked. Uh, so has your opinion changed uh, in the past months? Uh, and uh, if so, how? Um, it's, honestly, it does all the time. Um, in fact, uh, it's been a bit of a problem uh, 
with writing uh, my book, and I'll now show that on camera here. I've got a book okay. coming out um, at the end of the week called Move Over Brokers, Here Comes the Blockchain. Um, and it's a collection of the thoughts that I've had over the last couple of years. And just in discussing this book on LinkedIn with people, um, the question of what does it mean to own uh, a token on a blockchain? Uh, what does it mean to own a token on a blockchain? Uh, and I sort of realized that uh, there's, although you own your token, um, it's not the kind of ownership in the same way as owning a picture on the wall or um, owning a car uh, or, or a piece of land. Um, when you start looking at it from a legal perspective and that uh, there's a, one peculiar thing about, uh, for example, owning a Bitcoin is that you can just abandon it. Um, you can just put out the public key to your, um, uh, your coin and say, here, anybody who wants it can take it. Um, and that's not actually a transaction anymore. If, if you sell me something and I pay you with uh, cryptocurrency, I actually actively issue a command to send a transaction to the network. Um, and that transfers the ownership of the coin from me to you. And it's my decision. Um, I guess the closest thing would be if you just sort of left your car on the street with the keys in it and said, anybody who sees this can take it. Um, it's strange that you can do that with an asset um, and anybody in the world can take it. I can't think of anything else that you can do that kind of thing with. So we're sort of realizing there's an extra depth in ownership that, you know, um, if I put a 10 pound note on a gatepost, um, only people who are walking past um, who are actually in a physical location can claim it. Um, if you look at uh, uh, intellectual property, if I own a patent, um, I can't just put it out and say the first person who wants to take it can take it. Um, there would have to be a transaction where I actually sign the, um, uh, the ownership over to that other person. But with a decentralized blockchain system, you can have ownership that you can effectively disavow. Um, and so blockchain is just full of these little subtle things. And I'm a, I'm a big yeah. fan of analogies, of finding things in the real world that allow you to get a better understanding of how uh, blockchain works. Um, the problem is that um, although the analogies are sort of 95% effective, that remaining 5% can often be really subtle and really give you a different, almost philosophical perspective on what's going on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so yes, it's still changing. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how this uh, narrative changes from, from uh, experts like you and, uh, of course, the, uh, how the population ultimately will, will kind of uh, understand, uh, the, the broader population will uh, understand these uh, analogies and the, uh, the application of this technology. Uh, one, one kind of thing that occurred to me when, when we were talking about the, uh, uh, when, when you send the, your cryptocurrency, then it's gone and you can't get it back because it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a decentralized permissionless system. One interesting kind of technical thing that uh, occurred to me is that uh, because of this nature that you, know, you send the crypto and it's gone, uh, in Ethereum, uh, the address, uh, wallet address zero, which is not owned by anybody uh, mm -hmm. at the moment, is actually there's millions of Ether uh, locked in that address uh, because mm. the uh, 
when people program these uh, quote unquote smart contracts on Ethereum, uh, typically when they have a bug, they send Ether uh, to address zero. So, uh, mm-hmm. so there's, there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, dead, dead crypto uh, in that address. But yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of these stories that we could kind of go over on hours and hours. But unfortunately, as always, time flies uh, when you're having fun. Uh, and it's almost time to close another episode uh, of Fintech Daydreaming. But before we close, though, uh, it's time for our traditional end segment, uh, which I'm going to start calling same, same, but different from here on out, by the way. Uh, We usually want to talk about topics that are a step or two removed uh, from the main topic of the day. But uh, more often than not, we actually end up uh, where we started anyway. And just in this, keeping this theme alive, of course, uh, today's news article we picked uh, is yet another, another decentralized finance scandal uh, as covered by by Coindesk. So the headline goes, uh, DeFi protocol Pico Finance token loses almost half of its value after $19.7 million hack. And I think this is a a great piece of news for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's it's just fantastic uh, when uh, when Pico Finance uh, gets into a bit of a pickle uh, (laughs) when it lost uh, half of its uh, assets uh, uh, to, to hackers. Uh, the assets were actually uh, valued in, uh, in a cryptocurrency called DAI, uh, D-A-I. And for our listeners who haven't heard of DAI before, it is a so-called uh, stable cryptocurrency that aims to maintain its uh, value uh, pegged uh, to the US dollar. So that's why uh, we are able to say that it's a $19.7 million uh, hack. Now. Pico Finance, the, the brined punchline of the, of the news article, uh, on the other hand, is a DeFi protocol on Ethereum, uh, as we discussed just now. And it allows users to invest crypto uh, and gain interest uh, on their crypto over time. The hackers found a vulnerability in this automated protocol that allowed them to uh, drain uh, one of their so-called jars uh, uh, empty of, of cryptocurrency. And yes, indeed, a jar is another fun pun uh, in this space. But yeah, uh, what do you think, guys? Uh, will these DeFi hacks ever end? Uh, probably not. <laughs> it's, uh, it's impossible to make software bug-proof. And the ways that people can uh, manipulate protocols and software are immense. And there are a lot of eyes looking at this stuff because there's a lot of value locked up in it. Um, But there is one thing that I always find a bit confusing, which is you have this system that talks about smart contracts and everything is written in code and it's all automated. And then you read about a hacker and the term is used in a pejorative way, draining funds. Um, I mean, a common way in DeFi is something called using flash loans, where there's a small arbitrage and uh, flash loans from something like the uh, Arvid platform allow you to borrow literally tens or hundreds of millions for one transaction, conduct a series of um, activities, and then pay the loan back. And the loan is only issued if it gets paid back at the end of the same chain of transactions that are bundled in one transaction. So it's an incredible leveraging, uh, leveraging tool for uh, DeFi traders. And when one of these attacks, as they're called, happens, if you look at the code that is actually um, being run, they're, they're following the rules. Um, it, 
turns out though that they are following the letter of the rules and not the spirit of the rules. When a protocol is launched um, and a service is offered, uh, there's an idea that it's supposed to provide a particular service and it may be documented in a white paper and then that's coded up. But of course, what is actually on Ethereum is the implementation of mm. the white paper and anybody who works in software development knows that what you actually ship and what the specification says can never be 100% identical. It just happens to be in DeFi that when there's a discrepancy, it can result in tens of millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency being drained off. Um, and uh, in my book, I draw a comparison with George Soros when he, uh, on um, uh, when uh, Britain had to leave the um, uh, the European DRM, um, because George Soros was exploiting a bug in the British government's thinking. Britain was paying and paying and paying to keep the pound pegged to the. Um, was EQ then, I think, not the Euros, uh, but effectively to the German mark. Um, and Soros recognized that they could keep doing that forever. So he just kept um, piling his funds in, knowing exactly the point at which the British government were going to have to give up. So he exploited a bug in uh, British economic thinking. And we don't call him uh, a hacker who attacked the British financial system. He's generally called a financial genius. Um, mm. So I'm not condoning what these uh, DeFi hackers do because it's causing a lot of investors who don't know what they're getting into a lot of pain. Um, but it's very easy to start saying that's a hack. Um, I think it, it needs a little bit more thought in each case. And of course, you're not going to get that from a, a 300 word news article, unfortunately. But I'm, I'm just putting that out there as a thought for you. Interesting point. Uh, so what about you, Paul? What did you think about this? I, I think absolutely not. Like uh, Kia said, we are going to see more hacks like this, whether we want to call them hacks or not. I think turning turning the coin on its head, um, there are sometimes benefits in activities like this happening because it makes us you know, stand up, take notice, and improve the security, improve the code, improve the way that we are doing things. Quite to what you were saying just there, Kia, that they're not actually hacking; they're just following the uh, the letter to or, or the rules to its letters, right? Um, maybe we need to think a little bit more before we specify how things should run before we make them available, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, obviously, if somebody uses some social engineering to get hold of a private key and drains um, a contract of funds, that is a hack. Um, but uh, it starts going into a gray area when you're actually running the code as it was put out there on the, um, on the network. And these, these lessons are turning out to be very expensive. I mean, the DAO hack was the first um, what big one that we noticed that caused the rollback of Ethereum and resulted in the Ethereum Classic, Ethereum whatever it never really picked up a different name did it the other one the one that uh, vitalik buterin supports anyway um yeah. you know that, that was an expensive lesson these are incredibly expensive lessons um but then again it's finance you know you're not talking peanuts anymore um so uh right the uh i think the uh the, the kind of 
code is law camp uh, is looking at the code of the smart contracts and that if there's a bug then that bug is also law according to them uh, which is what we're kind of mm. saying here uh, whereas the other camp is saying that no it's it's actually the white paper and the intent uh, mm -hmm. that is the law uh, instead of the actual code and uh, it's interesting to see how this uh, will kind of balance out uh, in the future but at least you know uh, as, the, as that happens uh, we will find a lot of these uh, interesting stories to talk about uh, for sure. I'm also certain that this will not be the, the, the biggest uh, and definitely not the last uh, DeFi hack uh, we're going to see. But uh, awesome stuff, guys, as always. But unfortunately, our time is up. Now, here, uh, uh, Paul and I would like to give you a chance to let the listeners know uh, how can they find you, uh, get in touch, and most importantly, how can they find your book? Mm -hmm. So uh, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn, and my uh, name is unique in the world, so you can just search for it, or uh, my profile is Kier F. And the book has its own website, um, so I'll just hold that up again to draw attention to it. Uh, it's at www.thinklayer.com, and there's even a calendar there with a countdown to the actual launch hour. So. Uh, that's I think it's four, four days and two hours away thereabouts. So uh, do go and check that out. And um, Perfect. hopefully whoever gets a copy will be happy with what they get to read. Looking forward to that as well. So thank you again for coming on the show uh, and sharing some great experiences and insights uh, with us here today. But most importantly, thank you, our dear listeners, for hanging out with us for another episode. Now, do you have a fintech subject you would like Paul and I uh, to cover in a future episode? Uh, or maybe uh, you have a great story to share and would like to actually join us as a guest. Uh, or uh, if you simply came up with a worse or better banking joke that you heard in the beginning, uh, please uh, let us know and we'll see whether our listeners will uh, love it or hate it or love to hate it. Now, send us an email on any of the above topics uh, to hello at fintechdaydreaming.com or ping, ping us on LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, or the anchor.fm page and get in touch. And do remember that we also now have a fantastic website at fintechdaydreaming.com. Now, Paul and I will be back in two weeks' time with a new guest, so see you all again then. This has been Fintech Daydreaming. <music>